This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Jim Gordon. Jim is the founder and director of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and a clinical professor at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. He has authored several books, including the most recent, Unstuck, Your Guide to the Seven-Stage Journey Out of Depression. He's a leading authority on stress management and mind-body medicine, and has trained thousands of health professionals and patients on how to incorporate stress management and other self-care techniques into their lives. With Sounds True, Jim has created a six-session audio program called Freedom from Depression, a practical guide for the journey, in which he offers practical tools, meditations, guided exercises, and an entire map for how to restore joy and balance to your life when you find yourself in a state of depression. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Jim and I spoke about the actual research on antidepressants and their effectiveness. We also spoke about the most important mind-body approaches that can help people with severe depression. We also talked about how to get started with a mind-body program when you feel too hopeless and helpless to begin anything. And finally, we talked about the importance of breaking the silence, the taboo around talking about our suicidal thoughts and fantasies. Here's my very helpful and empowering conversation with Jim Gordon. Jim, I think many people think of depression through a disease model. I have this depression disease that I've inherited from my family or that for whatever reason I have, and that therefore I have to approach curing it through some kind of medicinal approach, like it was a disease. But you don't seem to be very fond of the disease model. Tell me why. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a nice way to say it. I, I think that the disease model is, is just inappropriate. I, I don't mind the disease model. I just don't see it applying to depression. The analogy that's often used in, in the medical community and in popular literature is, well, if you had insulin-dependent diabetes, uh, you would have to take insulin. And similarly, if you're depressed, you have to take antidepressant drugs. But, but the analogy is totally false one because insulin-dependent diabetes, there's a clear anatomical and biological and physiological changes that are quite consistent and there's actually something that's a very good remedy for um, for the condition, which is insulin. In depression, major depression is what psychiatrists call it when you've had a whole series of symptoms for several weeks or more. Um, in, in major depression, there is no consistent 
biological change. There's no consistent anatomical change. That, you know, when you autopsy people who have diabetes at the end of their lives, you can see the changes in the organs and the blood vessels. There's nothing like that for people who are depressed. Um, and there's no consistent physiological change. And sometimes people have higher levels of stress hormones. Sometimes they have lower levels. Sometimes their levels are normal. So the analogy is inappropriate. And even more important, the remedy, that is these prescription drugs, which the latest of which are the so-called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which means they're drugs that stop the serotonin from being taken out of circulation and cause there to be more serotonin between the nerve cells. Those drugs just don't work very well. Now, for, for a long time, pretty much everybody, and I, and I have to confess, even though I was not, I didn't like the effects or the side effects of the drugs, I thought, well, at least they relieve symptoms of depression. But that was based on literature that was completely skewed by the drug companies. Uh, essentially, the drug companies published all the positive studies and very few of the negative studies. And over the last 10 or 12 years, many of us, and I'm one of those early people, but other people have done it more thoroughly since then, looked at all the studies, the studies that had to be registered at the Food and Drug Administration but were never published. And when you put them all together, what you find is that antidepressant drugs are little, if any, better than sugar pills for treating the symptoms of depression. Plus, they have lots of very, very uh, nasty and sometimes quite debilitating side effects as well. So that's a very strong statement, Jim, that they're no more effective than sugar pills. I mean, that's a very, very that's strong right. statement. It's a, it is a strong statement, but it's been uh, it's a statement that's been made not just by me, but been made in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine in a review of these studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association and in a very important online journal called Close Medicine. Three different groups sort of... Uh, exhumed the studies that were at the uh, sitting around the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, through the Freedom of Information Act. And they looked at those studies. And one group says, well, for severe depression, it looks like they're a little bit better than sugar pills, a little bit. But one of the other studies actually suggests they're worse than the sugar pills for severe depression. So uh, what this means is not that people sometimes don't feel better when they take antidepressants, but that they should be very much a last resort and not the treatment of choice. It just doesn't make sense because of the evidence is not there, the analogy is a false analogy, and the level of side effects, 70 or 80% of the people who take antidepressants have one or another kind of at least unpleasant side effect. So why use them unless other, um, far less harmful, in fact, beneficial treatments don't work? Okay, a couple of questions here. I can think of several people, as you're speaking, who are friends of mine who are on these sugar pills or on antidepressants and report that it really helps them. What do you think they're experiencing if it might not be the benefit is actually coming from the antidepressant? Well, I wouldn't even say that. I said the benefit may be there, there may be people for whom that particular pill is useful. I don't, I don't deny that. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't say to people, you have to get off them. What I, what I say is let's look and see if there are other ways. 
Now, what they do, what many people report, is I don't feel so depressed, but I don't feel so much of anything anymore. It kind of evens me out. I don't have the lows, but I don't really have the kinds of highs that I used to have before either. So that's they seem to do that. They do act in some, for some people as a kind of tranquilizer. They do raise the levels of serotonin, um, which may improve mood in some people. But you can also raise the levels of serotonin with physical exercise. You can raise it with meditation. Um, you raise it with yoga. So wine, it's not that I'm saying they may not help people either directly through their action on biology or perhaps through the placebo effect, which is enormously powerful. If you believe something's going to help you, it's likely to help you. So the issue is not do they help some people or don't they help some people, but is that what you should be doing preferentially? Is that what you should be doing first, the way most doctors advise their patients, or should you only do that if all these other approaches that enhance our biology, enhance our psychology, enhance our connection to ourselves and others if they don't work. So it's really it's turning it upside down. It's not throwing out the antidepressants, but it's putting them in a very different perspective. Now, you mentioned that the general public may not be aware of some of the studies that show the negative effects of antidepressants or certain antidepressants. Can you tell me what some of those negative studies are, as I probably am not aware of them? Well, you know, anybody who's taking them pretty much is aware of them. But you're right, the rest of the public may not know because they're not, even though they're mentioned, they're really not emphasized. So about 60 or 70% of people who are on this group of SSRIs like Paxil and Prozac and Soloft and others, they have some kind of digestive disturbance. It may be small, it may be great. Sometimes people put on a lot of weight. Uh, that's one that you know a lot of a lot of people don't like. Sometimes there are headaches, um, sexual dysfunction. In one stud, in one series of um, what they call a meta-analysis, where a researcher looks at a whole bunch of different studies on side effects, showed up to seventy percent of the people who were on antidepressants had some alteration in sexual functioning, less libido, less desire. Uh, more difficulty being aroused, less interest in sex generally. So these are important side effects. Some people become more agitated when they take them. That's one of the reasons why there's a, a warning on antidepressants, particularly young people in the first week or two of taking them. They're depressed to begin with. They take the antidepressants. A, a, a certain number of them become more depressed, more agitated, and much more suicidal. It's a very serious side effect. Um, and then there are a number of papers that have been published about people who take antidepressants for a long time that show major neurological changes, um, tremors and twitches and um, other neurological, uh, significant neurological side effects that may or may not be reversible if you take the antidepressants. And this is a very, because anti, they're called selective serotonin uptake re-inhibitors, as if they only worked on that one chemical in the brain, serotonin. 
But in fact, they change the whole balance of brain chemicals, of neurotransmitters, in such a way that it can produce many side effects, some of which are these neurological side effects. And the, the literature has been, is there. We've known, we've known about this for 20 years. But I think, you know, doctors in general feel, well, yeah, there are side effects, but the benefits outweigh the side effects. And what I would suggest to people who are interested that they, you know, they, they check it out for themselves. They, they look, you know, they can listen to the audio tapes or, uh, you know, read my book Unstuck and look at the references and or look on Google at the references and they'll see that there really has been a shift. And the problem is that doctors, unfortunately, don't always pay attention to the science. They continue to do like like many of us, they continue to do what they've been doing because it looks to them like it works. So they say, well, yeah, the papers show that, but... And unfortunately, a lot of people suffer from being on these, these drugs and don't get the kind of benefit they're looking for. And more and more people are on these drugs. There are 30 million Americans who are on antidepressants, which is a huge number. So if the disease model is not an appropriate model for depression, what is, in your view? You know, the way I look at it is that depression certainly signals an imbalance. So on the one hand, it's a wake-up call. And if you're depressed, or for that matter, if you were anxious, it's letting you know that there's something going on that's not that's not right. Something going on uh, in your body, in your mind, in your life, in your in the way you're relating to other people, that, that's out of balance. And it's letting, when we're depressed, it lets us know we've got to pay attention. And so what, hopefully, what that realization does is it prompts us to take a look at the different aspects of, of our lives. For example, uh, it's been known for several thousand years, that loss is the major cause of depression. I mean, the Greeks knew that. Uh, In the anatomy of melancholy, Richard Burton uh, wrote, not the actor, (laughs) Robert Burton. I'm sorry, Richard Burton's the actor, Robert Burton. In the anatomy of melancholy wrote about loss as the major factor, and modern psychiatry knows that. So something simple to look at is what, what have I lost? What am I? What am I having difficulty letting go of? What am I mourning right now? Is it the loss of a relationship? Is it the loss of love? Is it the loss of position? Is it the loss of my sense of myself? And then beyond that, you know, what else in my life might not be working? So rather than uh, you know to look to medicate the symptom, look for the cause, and the cause may be an imbalance in our psychological life, which is what I've been describing in the loss of another, for example, uh, the imbalance may be there in our bodies. Uh, There are deficiencies of certain nutrients, for example, chromium being one, vitamin B12, um, vitamin B6, uh, some vitamin C in some people, that selenium, which is a mineral in others, vitamin D, all of those may contribute to or or indeed cause depression. 
Uh, it, it may be that we're physically inactive. We're meant, you know, our genetic programming comes from hundreds of thousands of years ago, or at least 100,000 years ago. And our genetic programming is designed for people who move around pretty much all the time. So if you're sitting at a desk all day long, uh, you're going against your genetic programming. Similarly, the food we eat, we're genetically programmed to eat a, 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 food, a diet that is mostly a plant-based diet with really not much grain. And uh, the meat that we're designed to eat is a very different kind of meat. It's wild game, very different from the meat that we eat that's raised on factory farms. Um, so we're not getting the nutrients we need, and we're getting a whole lot of things that may be toxic to our system. A simple, simple example is aspartame, which is a sweetener that's in a lot of diet foods of various kinds. In some people, not in all people, in some people, aspartame can cause depression. So you have to look at what, what, what are you eating, and then food sensitivities. We're eating all kinds of foods that <laughs> our bodies were simply not designed to uh, easily accommodate. And then some of us can, can deal with any kind of food, but others become sensitive to foods because we, our intestines have become permeable, become, we have leaky guts because we've, maybe we've had infections in our intestine, or maybe we've been on certain drugs that cause the gut to be more permeable. So, so molecules that are not supposed to enter the bloodstream cross the intestinal barrier, enter the bloodstream, cause allergic reactions, Sometimes those allergic reactions produce depression. Another area in which contributes significantly to depression is, is the way we live or don't live with others. And again, if you look at our history as a species, we tended to live in, in uh, you know, significant-sized groups with other people, to have lots of people around all the time. And... Many of us don't have that kind of social support, that kind of sense of, uh, you know, that there's always going to be somebody around. I think that's one of the reasons why in many indigenous societies I've, I've visited, it's not that depression is unknown, but you don't have the same numbers of people who become depressed, even with you know, very significant trauma or loss, because there are so many other people around to whom you can go for support and love and caring and just feeding and just people who will be there to hang out with. So that's that's another issue. And then finally, uh, I, I think that a lot of people become depressed because there's no longer, or perhaps there never was, a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. I mean, a, a very common example would be uh, parents who kids leave leave home, empty nest syndrome. And their purpose was, in their minds, to raise the children. Now they don't have a purpose. So why take a pill? Why not find something meaningful in your life that will give you that sense of purpose and that will give you a reason to be, you know, to be alive? Now, Jim, I know you've worked with hundreds of people who have come to you with depression, and you've worked with them as their mind-body physician. And 
What do you do when somebody comes to you and they say, you know, look, these are great recommendations. I know I need to exercise. I know I need to change my diet. But, you know, I'm depressed. I'm lethargic. I'm stuck. I mean, I don't have the energy for all of this change. That's the problem. That's right. And you, you're, you're giving a very good example of, of, of what it's like when you're depressed. And I have been depressed. So I know it from the inside as well as the outside. You help people begin where they can. You know, I can't go to the gym five times a week, but maybe you can walk around the block and begin that way. I can't, you know, I can't do all the assignments because I'm so down, I'm so depressed, I can't do anything. Well, can you clean off your desk? Can you clean up the dishes in the sink? Can you do something? So part of it is helping people to make small changes. And that becomes the basis for making larger changes. And it also gives us, if we make a small change, the message is very clearly, I can do something. And maybe if I can do this, I can do something else. I begin with people often by teaching them, a, which, which I do on the audio tapes as well, is teaching a slow, deep breathing technique, which just about anybody can do. And... People feel, oh, I feel a little more relaxed. I'm breathing in through my nose and out through my mouth, and my belly is soft. And they do that with, with somebody in my office or you know, on the tape for five minutes or so. And about 80 or 90%, and I'm talking depressed people and very seriously traumatized people as well as the professionals I train, feel a difference. And feeling that difference you not only see that you can do something to help yourself, the idea comes in, well, maybe it can all change. Because the hallmarks of depression are helplessness and hopelessness. And you describe them very well. So if you can give people some things they can do to help themselves, they're already have an antidote to the helplessness, and it gives them some hope that something else is possible. Now, not everyone. There may be some people, but there are very few who won't see some kind of change. And as a clinician or as a writer or as somebody talking with people, I'm looking for where's that possibility of change? What, what, what can I work with? The, the other thing is it's really important for people to, to start looking at what are you depressed about? Oh, I'm just depressed. Well, you know, I've worked with medical students quite a bit. I'm a medical student. Why shouldn't I be depressed? I said, no, 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 no. Why shouldn't I be stressed out? Why are you depressed and stressed out? And each one has a different reason. You know, my roommate's smarter than I am. My boyfriend is 500 miles away. I'm worried about my mother's health. Um, so every it's really helping people to get out of that kind of reflex state in which, you know, I'm depressed, I need a pill. Slow down a little. Let's see what we can do. Now, you offered this description of a five-minute breathing practice. Sounds very simple. Sounds like anybody could do it. I'm curious, in your practice, do you ever meet people who have just so much resistance or you could say self-hatred that they won't even do that? And how do you work with them? Well, I don't. If they really are not interested in doing what I, I mean, I think 
I think that's a very good answer. <laughs> there's a mistake in medicine in which we insist that everybody's got to do what we think they should do, regardless of whether it's a pill or deep breathing. So I say, look, you're, if you're not interested, that's okay. If what you want to do is take a pill, then I'll I'll refer you to somebody who will, you know, who who will do that with you. And if you get it, if at any point you get interested in what I have to offer, please come back. And what I've found is that interestingly, some of those people do, not everyone, because sometimes you just you know, you, you have a. I mean, we've all had this experience, you know. We know what we want. We know what's right for us. And then we have to do it. We have to go as far. I mean, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about hitting bottom. It's not just hitting bottom. It's it's taking, if you feel you need to do something, you should do it. The poet William Blake has this wonderful uh, line, which is, if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. And it took me a long while to understand exactly what he meant, but I, but I think that's what he means. That if you do, you know, if you're caught up in an idea in your head about what you should do, you've got to do it. And it's only if it works, great. If it doesn't work, then maybe some other idea, some other possibility will come and you will be open to it. But you can't be forced to, to do it. Now, you compare the journey through depression to a hero's journey, to Joseph Campbell's work in mapping the hero's journey. And do you think it's like that? Do you think it's heroic to move through depression? It sure was for me when I was depressed. <laughs> I felt heroic. And I, the people I work with, it feels, first of all, it's, it's, it's a dignified way to look at what we're doing. It, it, and I look at human life that way. That when when they're talking about heroes, they're not just talking about, you know, Odysseus or Odysseus or Hercules or somebody like that. The hero, we're all heroes or, or heroines. We're all people who are on, uh, as Dante wrote, we're on our life's journey. When Dante wrote, he was writing about every every human being. You come to a certain point in your life, and you've got to figure out where am I going? What's it What's it about? And it is a heroic journey. It's a journey of self-discovery. It's a journey of taking certain kinds of chances to realize things that you had either been ignorant of or had not wanted to see before. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of going into new territory, whether the new territory is a new territory of diet or exercise or reaching out to other human beings or meditation or self-reflection, uh, it's very much a hero's journey, and there are certain stages that most of us have on that journey. And if we look at those stages, we can you know, understand where we are on the journey, and we can be prepared, and we can use each part of the journey as a, as a step toward becoming whole and healthy and having more fulfilled lives. So I really, I see it that way. Uh, I encourage my patients. I encourage the uh, the Center for Mind Body Medicine. We train clinicians in this model, train educators in this model, and and people people get it. Once you once you've opened yourself to this possibility, you the the metaphor of the hero's journey becomes a reality for most people. You know, perhaps not everyone, but for most people.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Why do you think some people seem to be more prone to depression and other people don't? I mean, I know some people are like, you know, I just never get depressed. That's just not my thing. It just doesn't happen to me. That's a, that's a really good question. You know, we're, we all come into the world with different, um, different qualities, different attributes, different kinds of personality. It's, it, it's funny, when I was in, originally in psychiatric training early on, I, I focused almost exclusively, I would say, on the effect of parents and the effect of the environment. As I began to know infants, patients, and my own children, um, I I began to see there are certain things you come into the world with, and certain people are more, um, I don't know if they're more likely to be depressed. They're certainly more sensitive to stress they're more sensitive to loss, they're more cert- sensitive to certain kinds of challenges than others. And, you know, and some people are more optimistic. There have always been, there are certain people who just bounce through life. Now, some of those people, when something really disrupts them, they can get very, very depressed as well. But, you know, you look at, you look at, your, you look at a, a group of kids and you can see that some kids are much happier than others and much more resilient than others. So some of it is there in our biology. I don't, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, it's important, but it's, it's not the major factor. I think that we can work with that, with that biology. So everybody, everybody has their own, just like some people are more artistically talented. Some people uh, are more inclined toward, perhaps toward spiritual experience. They're more in touch with that realm from an early age. So there may be some people who are more vulnerable, and the the challenge is to help them deal with that vulnerability, not to not to have them see that they're victims of a disease, but to look at what's going on, look at the strengths, and to use uh, one of the things that I like to emphasize is that we all have certain strengths, and we should use both admit and accept our vulnerability. Uh, which is really important. One of the re- reasons people get in trouble, including becoming depressed, is because they think they always have to have it together. So admit your vulnerability, but then also use your strengths. To So, for example, if you like to write and you get some pleasure out of that, then when you're depressed, write down what's going on. could make a big difference. If you um, like to be with other people, then use that. Reach out to other people. Use whatever... Is, a, is an actual or a potential strength to help you heal what the weaknesses are. And don't be afraid of the weaknesses. Accept them. You don't seem to give that much credence to biologically inherited depression. I mean, I've certainly heard people say, you know, depression runs in my family, my grandmother was depressed, my mother, blah, blah, blah. But you don't seem to think that that's that major a factor. Well, the research doesn't show it's a major factor. I mean, that's that's why... It's a factor, but it's 
not a major factor in depression. In other conditions, sure, like, for example, in bipolar disorder, it is much more of a factor, a much stronger factor. But in either case, it's just a predisposing factor. It's not your destiny. You may be more vulnerable to it biologically. You also may be more vulnerable to it psychologically because, you know, you look just like Aunt Sadie and she was always depressed. So you're getting that message from early on. But even so, you can change biology. I mean, that you can change biology without drugs. The approaches that I use with people that we're, that we're talking about change biology. They change biology in a generally predictable and healthy way without the negative side effects of the drugs. And you can see this on brain scans of meditators, for example, that you shift the functioning in the brain, the high levels of functioning from areas that are associated with pessimism to areas that are associated with optimism and well-being. You can, with physical exercise, you can actually create new brain cells. There's an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is in the emotional part of the brain, what's called the limbic system. In the hippocampus, in people who've been depressed for a long time or people who've been seriously traumatized, you know, by war or by beating or abuse, especially when they're young, they lose cells in the hippocampus. Physical exercise can not only create new connections among existing cells, it can promote the growth of new brain cells in the hippocampus and also in the part of the brain called the frontal cortex. So we can change biology. It's not immutable, it's not fixed. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Jim, you briefly mentioned that in your own life you went through a period of depression. And I'm curious, why do you think you, as a professional, have chosen this to be one of your areas of expertise, working with depressed people and helping them on this journey? Well, I'm sure some of it had to do with my own experience. I think one of the, um, you know, one of the ways that we become interested in whatever we're interested in, hopefully, is through our own experience. So, finding my own way with help out of depression was a very important event in my life, and certainly made me feel more compassionate toward other people who were depressed. So that's one piece of it. The other is. Depression is perhaps the disorder of our time. Uh, 18 million people a year are diagnosed with major depressive disorder in the United States, according or would be diagnosed according to the epidemiological studies. That's a huge number of people. We spend about $12 billion a year um, on antidepressant drugs. Uh, and 30, as I said, 30 million people on antidepressant drugs. Obviously, a bunch of them don't have the diagnosis of major depression, but still they're on the drugs because they don't feel well or they have premenstrual syndrome or they have some pain syndrome. So depression is a major issue. Depression is a major contributor to heart disease, to uh, pain syndromes, to diabetes, and perhaps contributes, perhaps, we don't know for sure, to cancer as well. It certainly lowers immune functioning, so it's, it's, it's not good for your health. And I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm going to want to work 
with you know condition that can that is so widespread and that can make if I can help people find a, a better way, uh, then that's, that's my job. And I, you know, I really feel because I'm I'm interested in working. And the reason I began to focus some on depression is because whether it's through the book or through the audio tapes, is because so many people have said to me, "I'm depressed. Um, I don't have any money. I can't see a therapist, or there's no therapist who thinks the way." You know, you do because they'd read something I'd written. Um, what, what do I do? I mean, I, all my doctor just wants to give me pills. So what I'm, I, I want to respond to those people. Those are the people who tend to write me, and those are the people. You know, many of the people who come to see me, and I feel, you know, I feel a sense of fellow feeling of compassion with them, and I want to provide them the tools that they need to help themselves. And I also know if they help themselves. With depression, depression is the major cause of disability in the world. And you think, well, maybe it's AIDS or maybe it's cancer or heart disease. No, depression sidelines people, gets their lives messed up, uh, makes them non-functional far more than any other condition. It's kind of amazing. So that's, and I'm, I'm interested in helping. I'm interested in helping lots of people. I'm interested, you know, I'd say it fancy. I'm interested in public health. But I'm interested in helping people on a large scale to help themselves. You know, what's interesting in talking to you is you make depression sound so workable. Meaning, you know, often when I talk to people that I love who are depressed, it feels so unworkable. But in talking to you, it's, you know, exercise, meditation, deep breathing, an (laughs) antidepressive diet. I mean, it just seems like, you know, yeah, okay, it seems very workable. Yeah, but it's true. It is, but the nature of depression is to believe it's not workable. So that's where you start off. So it's very important that there are people who have had the experience themselves, like me, the experience with others of using an approach that works. So I bring that sense of possibility, a hard-earned, I would add, sense of possibility and of hope two people. I'm not saying it's easy. Not easy, you know, you're really feeling down, you're feeling worthless, uh, my life doesn't mean anything. It's not easy. It's 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 perhaps the hardest thing of all. People who have been depressed, and for example, people who've been depressed and have had cancer say, depression's much worse than cancer for me. So I appreciate how painful and how difficult it is and how difficult it is to see the possibility. But I know that at least for me and for many of the people with whom I've worked, it is possible to come through it, to learn from this time, this challenging time of psychological, physical, social, spiritual imbalance, and to come to a place of feeling greater wholeness. So that's what I bring, as I bring that earned experience to people and share it with them. I never trivialize depression. Depression is very serious, very painful, very difficult, and but it's workable. Almost, almost everybody, I would say. One of the interesting parts of your work that I want to highlight and would like to hear you talk about is in this journey, which you describe as a seven-stage journey, one of the stages, the fourth stage you describe as dealing with demons. 
you talk about demons as being things like procrastination or self-aggression, that kind of thing. And I wonder if you can talk about that. Specifically, you say that underneath the demon is what you call a daemon. And if you can explain that. Sure. Um, well, the word demon comes from that Greek word daemon or daemon. And some, some uh, listeners may remember that Socrates used to consult when he was in trouble. He would consult his daemon. He would consult this inner voice that voice of his own intuition, his own unconscious, his own deep sort of psycho-spiritual authority, and he would look for answers there. Now, what's happened in the two and a half thousand years since then is over a period of time, that sense of the power of that inner voice, that sort of mysterious inner voice, has has metamorphosed and really has been um, oh it's been uh, shrunken to the word demon. So in Judeo-Christian uh, thinking and Judeo-Christian theology, you see these demons, these things that are terrible and threatening, and we've lost sight of the the daemon, the daemon. We've lost sight of that internal power, and all we see is what's threatening. And what I'm what I'm saying is that if we look at our demons and we try to understand why they're there, that they become our greatest teachers. So that uh, resentment is one of the most terrible, I find, of, of all of the demons that we have because it just festers and sticks around and just keeps us, you know, miserable. Not only we're feeling miserable about a particular person or a particular situation, but then our whole life becomes miserable. So we have to look at it. What what is this resentment about? What is this? Um, why why are we stuck? To use that word that I like so much. Why are we stuck in this feeling? How um, how is it serving us? And and more particularly. Um, how is it getting in our way? And as we look at it, um, and perhaps we attempt to do a, um, <laughs> we attempt to either get angry. Resentment is a kind of festering, mean-spiritedness. If we can bring that up into anger, then it may go after a bit. Anger can come out, it can be expressed, it can go. Or we may want to look at the possibility that the resentment has colored our whole life and we may need to bring in a process of forgiveness. And I teach a forgiveness. And there are many forgiveness meditations. And I, I teach a forgiveness meditation to help us explore, perhaps little by little. We may not in the beginning be able to feel forgiveness for the person we resent the most, but perhaps we can feel forgiveness for, for somebody else who we just feel, you know, angry at or slightly resentful. So we we start looking at the demon, and as we learn to deal with the demon, then perhaps forgiveness can emerge. Perhaps that's the diamond under resentment. Or perhaps the... Uh, the the diamond is a capacity to uh, a freedom of expressing emotions 
a willingness to express emotions. So with that resentment just keeps, you know, festering rather than expressing and finishing with the emotions. Um, resentment is a kind of obsessiveness and maybe it's relaxation that we need. So these are all the potential diamonds that we may discover as we work with the demon resentment. And we can work with it with dialogues, we can work with it with meditation, we can work with drawings, all the different techniques that I, you know, that I teach. Now, let's take just one other example. I mentioned procrastination, because I could imagine someone listening who says, you know, yeah, of course, I know that exercise would help me feel a lot better. And I'll do that. Well, not tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, but I'm you know, that kind of thing. How do you help people work with procrastination? Well, that's a good one. That's a hard one, especially for somebody who's a writer. <laughs> Writers know about that one very well. I, I think what what I do is, what, what I suggest is something very simple, like do something that resembles the thing you can't do as a start. So if I'm I'm a writer, I procrastinate sometimes. I've got, I'm writing a book or I'm writing an article. Um, what I do is I I write an email. So I'm doing a task that's similar, not the one I'm procrastinating. And, it's, and then I write, maybe I write another email or I write in my journal. And it begins to loosen up the function that is so shut down and so stuck. So at a certain point, effort is required. Or let's say procrastination, procrastinate a little more. Go out and do something. Go out for a walk. Go out and buy something. Go do something that will, instead of sitting around staring at your computer, go out and do something else. And often the overwhelming spell of procrastination will be broken by going to the grocery store or getting a pair of shoes or whatever, or, you know, or going for a walk or playing with your dog, whatever it might be. Sometimes that frees you up from that kind of uh, stalled confrontation with the task. Now, Jim, before we end our conversation, I want to bring up what I think is a delicate topic, and it's something that you address in your work with getting unstuck from depression, which is how we can, first of all, admit and then work successfully with suicidal thoughts. And what I mean successfully with suicidal thoughts is try to understand the message that they contain versus obviously killing ourselves. I know this is a very sensitive topic to bring up, and I want to take the risk to talk about it, because I think often when you even just say something like, you know, I've been having suicidal fantasies, you know, not even to the point of, you know, suicidal thoughts, planning a suicide, just fantasies about it. It completely freaks everybody out. You know, you can't talk about that kind of thing. It's completely not allowed to be spoken. And yet it seems to me that it's probably very common and maybe even just sort of part of the human journey to consider such a thing. You've said it. I I agree with you completely. I mean, those, those thoughts come up, not in everyone, but, but, in a majority of people at one point or another the suicidal thoughts come up why am i here doesn't make any sense i can't stand it maybe i should die so and you're bringing it up is exactly what needs to happen we need to be able to talk about these thoughts and there is such a taboo 
against talking about them. Physicians, you know, often will turn away. Uh, I've never heard again and again. You know, as soon as I talked to my doctor about this, he said, uh, "Here are some pills, or I want you to see a psychiatrist." Well, that's not the. That's exactly the opposite of the appropriate response. The appropriate response is, "What's going on? Tell me about it," because. People, one has elected to tell those thoughts to somebody for a reason. So the crucial thing for people who are suicidal is to have somebody who is there with them and for them, whom they can trust, who will take what they're saying very seriously, but will not freak out, will not you know, rush to do something inappropriate. And that's a, you know, that requires sort of, a certain steadiness of, uh, of of character and a certain understanding, but that's really really important. And I would say that if people are feeling suicidal and despairing, that it is something that may be a kind of perfectly understandable part of the of the psychological journey that they're on. That it is very important to have somebody who is there with you. And if you don't have a a therapist uh, or somebody you trust to be there with you, you may want to call Suicide Hotline. And I used to work with a a hotline that did wonderful, wonderful work with with suicidal people. And there there is a national suicide hotline with lay people who are supervised by professionals who are there for you. So the the beginning is exactly what you're saying. Say, okay, I am feeling this. Uh, If it's a thought that just comes, you know, every once in a blue moon, just watch it come and watch it go. But if it's something that's there and you're thinking about it, you really do need to talk to someone. You need to find somebody whom you trust, ideally somebody you can talk with in person, if that's not possible, at least in the beginning, then find somebody on a hotline that you can talk to. And then you'll begin to explore, the. once you have made that contact, it's easier to explore what's going on in my life. Why am I, because you're really, a, uh, forgive the pun, you're kind of at a dead end. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't, don't think I can make a difference. I'm. What's the point? So what what does that mean? What brought you there? What are you missing? And that's the beginning of the exploration that may help you to find something that's crucial, not only to staying alive, but to really finding your path in this life. Many people come to a fuller understanding of who they are and why they're here on this planet and what they're meant to do and who they're meant to love and care for and be with only after they've been through this kind of this kind of crisis so we have to honor it at the same time that we want honor it as something that has potentially has healing in it at the same time that we're extremely careful and that we take care of people who are going through it you know, I think one of the challenges, of course, in anybody sharing that they've had suicidal fantasies or thoughts is, you know, oh, my God, you're going to lock me up or you're going to call the police or you're going to take this radical action. And that's not what I need. I just need to talk. But who can I talk to who understands that? That's right. 
So it's really important. I mean, occasionally there are people who are really saying, lock me up, I need it. That's, that happens. But, but you're right. For most people, it's really saying, I need somebody to talk with. And we need to become, I mean, educated as a society. We need our professionals to be educated, to, to not be so, so terrified. I, I work with a lot of, um, I, I work in a lot of crisis places around the world where there have been wars and natural disasters. And I work back here at home with, with U.S. military, many of whom are going through that. It's very hard for them to talk about, and it's absolutely essential. It's the beginning of them being able to heal themselves and not act on those thoughts, not act on those feelings, but really find out, find another way. So, yes, you're right. We need, and we need to to understand that. We're, you know, we're a society that's so we're scared of depression. You know, the average time it takes for a primary care doctor to write a prescription from the time he or she hears anything that sounds or looks like depression is between two and three minutes. And the message, whatever the, uh, you know, as we've talked about, antidepressants generally don't do that much good, if any good. But that's not even the most serious thing. The most serious problem is that the doctor is essentially saying, I don't want to talk to you. I'm just going to write a prescription for you. And because they're, they're, they're scared. They don't want to deal with depression. They don't know how to deal with it. It gets them uneasy, perhaps touches on their own fears, their own tendency toward depression. And, and suicide is much, much more so. So that there's so much fear of, of talking about it, of dealing with it, of helping people to understand what's going on. But we, we have to change that. Now, Jim, just as a final question, you mentioned that earlier in your life you went through a depressive period and that your work in this field is hard-earned, hard-won. And I'm curious if you found yourself in a depression again, do you have a sense of what approach you would take knowing everything you know now? Well, I have, I have certain, I've gone through, like many human beings, I've gone through difficult crises in my life, um, losses, pains, confusion, and I have used all of the approaches that I describe. I've uh, worked with meditation, with physical exercise, I do drawings, I, I shake my body and dance, I cry, I yell, I work with my demons, I reach out to other people, I look for what's out of balance and where I should be headed. I do all of these things. And therefore, I don't, I don't think I could be diagnosed with clinical depression. It's not that I wasn't miserable. It's that I move through it in a different way now. So yes, I have bad times and maybe difficulty sleeping and when, when something has come up and I'm unhappy. But I'm able, it seems, able to learn from it, to move through it, and uh, to sometimes with the help of others, often with the help of others, could be professional help or could be friends, uh, colleagues, I'm able to move through those times and learn from them. So each of these episodes that comes up has been one that's, you know, part of my life. It's not something separate and apart. It's something, they're really intense 
often painful periods of learning. And it's not like I want to keep on having them, but if they come, I better look at what's going on. Because if I look at what's going on, look at what's out of balance, begin to use all these approaches that I'm teaching others, use those approaches, then I can come through them. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Dr. James Gordon. He's created a new six-session audio learning series from Sounds True called Freedom from Depression, a practical guide for the journey. It includes meditations, guided exercises, practices, advice, and a complete description of the seven-stage journey through depression that he teaches in his work. Jim, thank you so much. Thanks for being really brilliant, helpful, and just so clear and empowering. It's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.